Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, and we have a special guest host with us today. Hopefully, um, she can be a part of it more often. We have our good old friend Liz here. Hi, Liz. Hi. Thanks for having me. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have Liz um, on this show is we're going to be talking about the Bible from a little bit of a different perspective, because we're talking about a clip that Julia Sweeney put out on Twitter. I guess like a couple months ago now, she put it out. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Julia Sweeney, she's a comedian and actress, most known for her work on Saturday Night Live in the 90s. She appeared in a lot of films, too, including a small role in Pulp Fiction. But my favorite thing she did is a brilliant one-woman show called Letting Go of God. If you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. It's a thought-provoking film where she takes you through her life um, and her journey as it relates to spirituality. She really opens herself up and reveals how she confronted her doubts and grappled with her evolving beliefs, all with wit and raw vulnerability. Ultimately, she jettisons a belief in God, and I'm sure a lot of us can relate as she deals with the fallout from her family and, um, and all those type of issues. But I'm a big fan of Julia. I don't know, Ben, did you see the film? Yeah, I watched it. Um, you can actually get it on YouTube. Um, at least that's where I watched it. And I I liked it a lot, too. I mean, um, she's a really good storyteller. And it's a very intimate film. It's basically just her talking to you. And um, and it has moments that are very funny and moments that are sort of uh, sad. But if you've been on a, like a sort of journey of deconversion or... Um, <clears throat> are are struggling with leaving uh, any faith, really. Um, I think you'll find a lot of things to feel in common with her and uh, experiences that you would have in common. Um, but it's also just like a really good film. I uh, recommend it very highly. So the reason I wanted to have Liz on uh, this show in particular is because Liz is a writer herself. She's a brilliant playwright and screenwriter. And um, so I thought, uh, as, as you hear this clip, I think um, that will come into some clarity because uh, Julia Sweeney talks about the Gospels from a um, kind of a screenwriter's perspective. And uh, Liz, are you familiar with Julia Sweeney at all? I, only from SNL. I actually had no idea 
uh, that she was, you know, a deconstructionist. And I'm really glad you guys told me about that piece. Um, yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, it's funny. I all, the same when I saw that when I first saw the movie, um, I was kind of like shocked because I had just seen her as kind of like a you know quirky personality actor and comedian, and uh, to see her go deep into that stuff was really, uh, really cool. So yeah, but the video here is super interesting. Like I said, she talks about the Gospels and the Bible and how they evolve over time. Usually, we talk about the opinions of scholars and historians. But I think it's good to hear from other people, and in this case, a writer and performer, and see what they bring to the table. Yeah. One of the other interesting things about um, the film is she talks about, she actually starts taking classes on the historical, uh, like a historical critical method of studying the Bible and studying the text like in their historical context. And so that's a big part of what makes her start to see um, the Bible in a completely different way. And so I thought that's really useful since that's really the lens that we try to look at Scripture and the Bible through on this show. So again, it's just another reason to check out the film. Um, if you find that stuff interesting, she talks a lot about the sort of like historical revelations that she goes through uh, in her studies. Yeah, and the way she presents it um, in kind of like a loving way. I mean, she talks about her family and, you know, her family obviously um, has a big problem with her leaving, you know, the faith that they all have and that she grew up with. And I think that like, you know, if you're used to watching people like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens and you get a very like intellectual and sometimes almost like a kind of a harsh um, perspective. And when you see Julia Sweeney, um, she's just so friendly and loving and you can tell that she really cares about these people. And I found it kind of moving and I had never really seen this type of a presentation before. But here she is just on Twitter talking about the Gospels. Hello. Um, if you read the Gospels in the Bible, and the Gospels are some are four books in the New Testament, um, each telling the story of Jesus' life in slightly different ways, and you read them in the order that they were written, which is not the order that they are in the Bible, slightly, and you've worked as a screenwriter, it's impossible not to read them as successive drafts of a screenplay written under the thumb of a studio executive who wants more pizzazz with every draft. For example, in the first gospel, Mark, um, there's no origin story for Jesus. There's no Mary and Joseph. There's no three wise men. There's no manger. Jesus just arrives on the scene at about age 30, gets baptized, starts saying some stuff and doing some stuff, riles up the authorities, gets arrested, tortured, and killed. Makes no appearances after his death. That blew my mind. And I loved that story of Jesus. I love his message of um, loving your neighbor, of um, inclusiveness, like with the Good Samaritan story, um, about giving away your possessions for the poor to the poor, and I could see myself pitching that screenplay to a studio. 
I would tell them that my screenplay would be social realist in style. It would be gritty. It would be poignant. It would be sad, heartbreaking, and ultimately uplifting. In the end, when Jesus is on the cross and feeling disillusioned himself, there would be a grace note, a little ray of light. And Jesus would think, maybe my ideas and my message of love will will live on after I'm dead. And maybe the world will be a better place for that and then die. And I can imagine turning that screenplay in and my agent calling me and saying, Julia, they got the script. They have one big note slash question. Where are the miracles? There's no miracles. So I'll pause it there for a second. I mean... Um, we always, anyone who's listened to this show knows that we've talked a lot about, um, you know, the synoptic problem and the various gospels and how, you know, Mark in priority and how Mark was the first gospel written. And then Matthew took it and, you know, changed some things and changed some of the theology and, um, and exaggerated things at points. And all that is coming from, you know, we've, we've quoted scholars and historians, but I think it's interesting from her perspective, someone that's worked in the entertainment business her whole life. And when she reads it and she sees it, she sees it as kind of an evolving production. Um, and that's, again, why I think it's important to look through uh, other people's eyes sometimes. Yeah. So I'll start out being a jerk and just uh, correcting a couple things. <laughs> um, there's, uh, there are a few miracles in Mark. I think there's like 13. Um, and the Good Samaritan actually comes from Luke. Other than that, though, I actually really love the way that she um, frames this, like frames looking at the Gospels this way. I mean, really, this is like a literary criticism um, view of the Gospels. So you look at them as literary works, the works like internal to themselves. You compare them against each other. And so I think this is like, right along in that methodology, and I think it's super useful to look at the Gospels this way. And I think that she's totally right. You know, Mark is the stripped-down Gospel. Everything is happening um, with this urgent immediateness, like the immediately they're going places. Um, there's no origin story at all. There's just the Jesus like being adopted as God's son at the baptism. And... Um, and eventually being like further identified um, it, with some special place at the Transfiguration. Um, and then you get a real angsty Jesus at the end uh, who is caught up in the sort of uh, miscarriage of justice and goes off to the cross and it feels very abandoned, um, doesn't really defend himself. So Mark is super stripped down. It's very fast moving. Um, it's way more gritty. There's like a bunch of problematic stuff in it that we can get into. I'll give my props to uh, Robin Faith Walsh, who I like constantly am praising. I was actually reading her book earlier today. You know, if we think of the Gospels as literary productions by um, literate elites um, in the Greco-Roman world, which is almost by definition what they are. I mean, these that we're talking about, they're part of the 10% of the population that could read or write, are producing these works. They have to have the means to be able to write in Greek 
and have access to parchment and stuff to write on. So like the basic production means that this is a person that's creating a, a story. And so thinking about it in this way, I think is very useful. And it draws out a lot of important things in each of the Gospels. So the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels. And the format of all three of those Gospels is basically identical. Like the, the way the plot um, unfolds is the same. And most of the text is actually the same, almost line for line in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A lot of people don't realize that. So what Julia Sweeney is pointing out is when you look at the changes, like how, oh, Matthew has the same story, but he, he changed it. Why did he change it? And, and that's what she's pointing out. She's looking at it as, it seems like someone took this first draft and, um, and tried to kind of like give it more pizzazz, to use her words. Yeah, so I guess I'll jump in. So this is, you know, obviously, it's fascinating. This is obviously a comedy bit. You know, she's she's a comedian. She's testing material. And so it's obviously not, you know, these these books were not written for entertainment purposes, I'm assuming. That's true. <laughs> um, but I had never really thought of these texts in that way before. As And it's like, well, of course, these everything that is written has a purpose. So everything has a, a you know, it's, it's there to persuade. Um, but it is a really interesting idea that if Mark is the first one and people are basing their later texts off of Mark, that's actually a really fascinating idea that it's, they're making choices to make the, the story better. <laughs> as it goes through time it's i'm like why didn't i ever why did that never cross my mind and for those of you out there you know the three of us are friends but i'm an ex-evangelical and i'm for the first time in my life confronting a lot of things that i never gave one thought to when i was younger if you look at mark as an early you know if that's what it's based off of the ending of it in the earlier manuscripts was really bad. It was it was not it was not exciting. In fact, it was it was not very flattering either. <laughs> so like I'm looking at it right now, a lot of the I guess earlier manuscripts ended at uh, chapter sixteen, verse eight, and it ends trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like, no, you're fired. You're fired. <laughs> this is not how we... Let's redo it. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that thought is exactly the thought that, you know, apparently Matthew and Luke had, the authors of Matthew and Luke, because they read it and were like, well, we can't end it like that. Kind and the person that added on to Mark. I mean, the people right. who added the, the extra endings onto Mark realized. Exactly. So, like, Mark got... That draft got its own its own edition, like, for the DVD release. <laughs> but the, the, added a, a deleted scene. Yeah, I mean, the the standard view that I think most scholars have is that um, there were these were written to communities, and the, mm. those communities didn't necessarily all agree with each other. So you know, Matthew's community was likely different than Luke's community. Um, so in Matthew's community, Matthew obviously is really trying to make a big point of connecting Jesus to the Old Testament, like throughout the whole. 
uh, book of Matthew, like a lot of the additions that Matthew adds in are things like, and this was to fulfill the prophecy of X, Y, and Z. And um, a lot of things that, you know, Luke doesn't have, Mark doesn't have, and John doesn't have. So people have inferred that um, Matthew is writing to a, um, a more Hebrew audience. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, and this is more of a, you know, history question, but do you, do you think that these were written to be read? I um, mean, read aloud, not, not read with your eyes, but, but per- performed in a way, or are they speeches? Are they sermons? See, I think that's like not a totally clear, I don't think that there's a clear answer to that. I think that all, the only thing that we can really make assumptions are is about other texts that we have that are floating around at that time. Like the, 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 the scholarship treats the gospels differently. I don't think that they, I think the assumption is that they would be doing something like churches would be holding on to them. Communities would have them. Communities would copy them. They would be used like passed along that way. Um, through some sort of network of belief. But I think a lot of people are starting to question like the underlying assumptions that are behind those, those claims too. Like were there um, these like tight communities that weren't fractured and uh, like uh, diverse and spread apart or um, in conflict with one another. Um, So I don't think that scholars know exactly what they were used for. I mean, like they are, they do have an evangelical uh, agenda. That's what they say. The authors, like I think, almost always explicitly say that in the Gospels. But I think that I don't know that we know for sure what exactly they use Mark for. Yeah, I mean, we don't even know who Mark was. This is all making my mind go into some wild places. <laughs> it's like I again, I don't want to talk. I don't mean to talk about myself much, but it's like shocking to me how little thought I gave any of this as a young person sitting in church. Like I, I would, you know, my assumption was, always, well, I guess these are books. So I guess they were written to be passed around and read. Nobody could read. If you're, if you're out there to evangelize people, it's going to probably be storytelling, which makes, even though, again, even though Julia Sweeney's doing this for comedic purposes, it's almost like maybe there's some real truth to this. In that, if you want to evangelize, you've got to tell a better and better story, right? And this is all oral, oral, I suppose. Um, and you're saying these are written in Greek, which I also kind of didn't realize, which m- makes more sense if you're an elite or, or elite enough that you can read and write in Greek, you would probably know poetics that would have been around for a couple hundred years. And so it makes total sense to me, the jump from Mark to Matthew. Matthew They would is... have to have some knowledge of like Neoplatonism, like, uh, yeah. like Middle Plat- Platonism, the Homeric epics and stuff like that. I mean, like, well, by, yeah, just I mean... by nature of knowing Greek at that time, knowing how to read and write, they would have read that stuff. Exactly. Um, so they would know, oh, Mark really needs a deus ex machina. Yeah. Let's do it. And they and they did it. That in you go from what the next isn't Matthew the second one? You go yeah, in Yeah, most likely Matthew's the second one, yeah. And then that's the one that goes from that terrible ending to 
you know, the freaking earthquake and the lightning yeah. and the, it's, it's just like, it's theater. It's theater. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I just wanted to throw out just a couple more things that I think are interesting about Mark that you would see would be problematic in a first draft. Um, I mean, first of all, no one even knows who Jesus is in Mark. Like literally for the first eight chapters, no one can figure out who Jesus is. And this is after they've seen him baptized and adopted because that's really how that's how he becomes God, God's son in Mark is through the baptism. Um, and uh, once they finally figure out, oh, you're the Messiah, he's like, no, 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 you can't tell anyone that. Um, right. So that's a huge component to Mark, too. It's like if you're trying to make a hero and nobody even knows who the hero is, you can imagine they're going to send that draft back to you. Like, can we make this a little more clear who this guy is? Like his own followers don't even know. And then as soon as they tell him who he is, he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to die. Um, and then Jesus's death is very angsty in Mark. Like he's like not he's praying that the couple be taken from him. Um, he's silent when he goes through this whole charade of, uh, trial. Um, when he's accused, he doesn't say anything. He goes off to the cross. He, he yells out, father, you've forsaken me. And then he gives up his spirit and dies. Um, and then like Liz said, even the resurrection, you don't even get an appearance of, of Jesus, uh, post resurrection. You just have the empty tomb. Um, and the ambiguous ending of send my, send, tell my d disciples to meet me in Galilee, but uh, the, the women were afraid and tell no one. So, <laughs> so the end, and yeah, they were never heard of, from again. A, like, a lot <laughs> of stuff that you could see, they would be like, what was this guy thinking? Like, this is like your first project. You can't be giving us this weird art house uh, film script. Well, there's different theories. I mean, um, some people think that there originally was an ending to Mark that that's just been lost. Um, or some, and some people think that maybe the author just died before he completed it. <laughs> uh, so we don't really know. We don't really have an answer. All we know is that Mark ends in a very unusual way. But I think to Liz's point, yeah, growing up in church, this this understanding that we're talking about now is hugely problematic for any apologetic understanding of the Gospels because what you're saying is you can't take these as all being true. You Instead, you see the, a creative production, and I think that's the valuable thing that uh, Julia Sweeney is bringing to this by pointing out, hey, guys, this is a creative production. Um, this is something that we're seeing evolve and change. And, and you can see when you come from that world, you can see like these changes being made, why they are probably being made. And it's absolutely true. Yeah. And it's part of it is about getting, uh, finding a way to have the conception of maybe not exactly how the Gospels were put together historically, but how the process actually functions. So you start with Mark and then what happens? Mark goes to Matthew and to Luke. And they essentially just take all of Mark and then add some more stuff to it. And they have their own source that they share and they change the stuff that they add. But that's like, that is really what's happening. Like now when they have all this stuff together, exactly how it, it functions, like exactly who has what, when those are, are separate questions. But if you just want to think about how the material is being used, it is, it's, it's going to people, it's being exaggerated, it's being edited, it's being like put together into a new form, but essentially you're just getting a rebranded mark. 
uh, Mark with some added stuff. And now you and then you're getting like Matthew, Luke, Luke, Matthew that are essentially like almost the same, but edited a little bit differently. Yeah. And the um, to your point earlier about writing to the cultural elites, I mean, um, Luke basically starts like saying that. You know, he's writing to Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was, but it seems like Luke is a is literally a commissioned work for a an individual. Um, so that might give us a little bit of insight into why these books were written and who they were written to. And I would say, oh, you know, I don't. Are the miracles important? I mean, the message is important. And my agent would say, the miracles are the message. They want you to add some miracles. Have Jesus do some stuff. Wow the people. Walk on water. Cure the sick. Add some miracles. So I would do it. I would write two more drafts, each with more miracles. And then I can imagine my agent calling me and saying, Julia, you have one more draft and you're going to get your final payment. They have a couple of notes. You got a pen? One. Jesus curing the sick, not doing it for him. Uh, they want you to go farther. Their idea, Jesus raises somebody from the dead. Now, Jane, uh, head of the studio, she has a cousin who recently died. I think his name was Lazarus. I don't know, if you name the character Lazarus, that might be good. Uh, secondly, you probably read in Deadline Hollywood, the studio just bought a controlling interest in Robert Mondavi Wine. They would like you to add a big set piece scene with Jesus and wine. You're the screenwriter. You come up with it. You do what you do. Weddings test well. They always test well. Again, I think that it makes perfect sense. There's a bunch of ambiguities um, or stuff that could be punched up and uh, you want to take a better crack at it. Um, I was actually laughing out loud at a couple of those parts because they're like the weddings test well. She's funny. Yeah, the wine thing is is great. I The effect, the overall effect of this bit, I think is really genius. Um, and again, I can't believe I didn't think of this myself. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's, uh, it would be so, I wish I had like a little historian in my pocket to, to sort of be like, what would be interesting is to know how each book lines up to what was going on in the world at that time, because I would guarantee you're going to see some of the changes not made, not just for pizzazz, but also to be more relevant to what's going on at that particular time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, again, I, I, I wouldn't be able to prove any of that, but I would imagine that that's the case. I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of a few examples of that. I mean, and, and one thing I was going to talk about is it's not just the Gospels. I mean, the Gospels, then, then you go into the book of Acts, uh, and then um, we get into like extra biblical texts, like it going off into the church. And then you can see this, this process continued. Like the, our canonical books, the ones that we have in the Bible, canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then we also have a lot of other gospels that were written after um, these ones were written. And that process just continued. So the idea that 
a lot of apologists will make is that no, there was this one like firm gospel that was written and that's been passed down from the original disciples all the way to us is just it's just nonsensical when you look at the history because you see um, the exaggerations got further and further until you get into the medieval period where you have the disciples themselves having these miraculous tales of of their uh, of their martyrdom and it was totally acceptable at that time to make these changes and to write something in a different way and tell the story differently and it was not at all some you know monolithic story um, all the way through it kind of amazes me how you know how, how many people you know there's a most people in my life take the bible literally they they think and again, I don't know how they do this if they've actually read it, but they're look they're telling me that it is literal. It happened, and I, I get, to me it just kind of devalues the Bible. If that makes sense, it's sort of like we're looking at it in a in a very real way right now. We're looking at it as a something that was written that actually was written thousands of years ago for a reason by real people and it's sort of like to to suggest otherwise that is some sort of magic sacred book that has been exactly the same when it was written in english (laughs) and it's just like it i'm not being very articulate right now but it's just i'm having an emotional response because it blows my mind that that it's offensive to people to suggest, for example, that the book of Job is a theater piece, which it clearly is. Again, why is that offensive to say that it's a theater piece? Why is it offensive to say that these gospels are telling the story of someone uh, and, you know, people take it like you're saying it's fan fiction but it's like that's how stories were told at the time. That's how stories were told for until very, very, very recently. <laughs> it's like we still have these debates about Shakespeare and authorship, and that was relatively close in time. The stories that he told were stories that everyone knew. They were just getting retold and retold and retold with your own take on it. That was totally normal. Yeah, and most um, you know Christians have no problem at all if you talk about you know what you know what is genuine and not genuine in other pieces of literature. If you were to talk exactly. about you know um, you know was this part originally Homer? Was this part originally Shakespeare? Um, but when you do that with the Bible, oh, like you're you've committed this uh, um, crazy heresy, you've you've crazy sin, which. Um, you know, it's really frustrating for, I'm sure, for people like you who are, you know, interested in the literary process. And you see, you obviously see that, like you mentioned Job, and there's plenty of other books in the Bible where you can see that creative process as a, as a creative writer yourself. And you're supposed to just ignore all that and say, nope, it's not human, it's divine, and it's perfect. And it also does a huge disservice to, you know, the authors themselves, because you're really, you're saying, well, Matthew's saying the exact same thing as Mark. And uh, and John is saying the exact same thing as Luke, and and uh, in many cases they're not. So you're taking the, they were the ones that wrote these books, and you're like 
you're taking that away from them. And um, I think that's doing them a huge disservice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the um, the observation that the later drafts would, ref- would reflect um, moments in history that were happening during the time, like moments that are happening in history during their writing is um, extremely astute because that is something that we see a lot. Um, a lot of the things that are um, like added in Matthew and Luke are address seem to be addressing issues that are specific to the day of Matthew and Luke. Um, so Luke starts to get really anti-Semitic by the end. Um, you have like the Jews basically like t- saying to like bathe our children in the blood of Jesus, like because we're responsible for his crucifixion, and being more and more identified with. Um, being the ones that crucified Jesus and and that reflected the beginning of the split from a Jewish sect that was early Christianity to more Greek believers um, and Christianity really formulating itself as something separate to uh, Judaism. And I think the other another thing that happens that we we talked about in previous episodes in Luke is you start to see this sort of like, um, persecution narrative and how to go to your death with honor. And that's Christianity sort of reversing um, the normal social um, ideas of masculinity. And I think that comes from dealing with the um, the crisis of having their savior crucified and um, having to formulate like the theological necessity for that created this idea that like, well, he suffered and died and that's actually going and suffering and dying um, is the way to be the epic hero. And they sort of co-opted those like uh, Greek heroic ideas into their um, savior who was crucified. I think that that was a, that was a really, um, that was actually a a super um, astute point that you made, Liz. And then the other thing that I wanted to say is your point about Job is also, um, if you read Job closely, you can tell that it's multiple uh, narratives that have been put together. Um, And to kind of like pretend that it's not, you miss out a lot. And I think that's John's point too. Like if you don't, if you are forced to read the gospels in this really fundamentalist way, you just miss out on the differences that are, are the authors really trying to tell you what the authors are trying to tell you? Because there was a reason that Matthew changed the things that he changed from Mark. And there was a reason that Luke and Matthew may have put things differently. And that's because they are trying to tell you something as the author. And if you just try to make them say what the other person is saying, you're missing what they were trying to tell you. Yeah, and the I, one thing I want to add is, um, as far as you know, works in the Bible being like an obvious literary production, like a creative production. Ben, we were just talking about um, Abraham and Isaac, and I was showing you examples of like um, older versions of that story that uh, were written before the biblical account of Abraham and Isaac, with different characters, but basically the same basic plot line is there about having to sacrifice um, his son, and then a 
an angel comes or a deity comes to stop them. This was something that had been told many times before it was written down in the Abraham and Isaac story. But it's not just that story. You can talk about the flood. You can talk about the Tower of Babel. You can talk about the Garden of Eden. Um, many Old Testament accounts. Um, so that so this is just that process continuing. And really quickly to get back to Liz's point about you know, understanding what was happening historically at the time that um, the gospel, the gospels were written. Um, I think one good example that we we did a short series on the end times and the various views of the end times. But one thing that's pretty obvious is Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to be talking in a period of time where some of the original followers of Jesus were alive. The same thing with the Apostle Paul. His his uh, epistles are written in a period of time where those people are still alive, which is why they had this expectation that the second coming, um, Jesus would be returning from the heavens with fanfare while those people were still living. And I think, you know, one of the answers to why were these books written is because they offered great hope to these people um, that were looking for that event. But by the time you get to John, which most scholars believe was written after the lifetime of the original disciples, they're no longer looking, they no longer have that expectation. And the same thing with a book like an epistle like Second Peter, which it seems like that expectation is now, has now gone. So anyway, like looking at these books from the historical perspective uh, of when they were written gives you so much more insight into them than the, I'm sorry, but kind of cold, uh, inerrant, holy reading that uh, most people are used to from reading in church, where you're not even allowed to develop those ideas. It's almost like, it's like a PR. It's like an, it's like the, the first three books were like from an ancient, PR firm and I this kind of, I'm saying that just because like I'm I still don't totally understand how Christianity became the dominant world religion in the sense that you have these sort of and I'm going off topic here I suppose but you know you have these followers of Christ um who somehow were relaying their story to these writers and it was, and they were going, they were traveling. They, I'm just trying to figure out how, how did they sell this? Hmm. This, this may be a a different too far afield, but I'm trying to connect all this stuff in my mind and it's very difficult. No, I think everything you're saying is like, you're raising a lot of like really good questions. And I think it's hard because there's not always clear answers to them, but I will say that, you know, we talk a lot about Matthew, Mark, and Luke because that's what we've all been taught in church. But all indications are there was a lot of other writing um, that we don't have anymore that has been lost to history. And what we do have is what has been preserved by what ultimately became, you know, the Orthodox Christian Church. And um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind. Like there, even in the gospel of Luke at the beginning, he says like many have undertaken to, to take, make an account of all these things. Well, as far as we know, there was only two gospels at that point. There was Mark and Matthew. So, but he says many. So it, it, what that tells me is that, um, there was a lot of writing going on all over the place. And a lot of it was quote unquote rejected, um, because it didn't go along with, um, the orthodox line that we now all know. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's probably right. I think that to a certain extent, there's a gap between the people that the gospel describes as the followers of Jesus, the itinerant Galilean Galilean fishermen who are supposedly the ones that make up the Jesus movement. We don't have anything from them. So everything that we have to figure out from them is from what these authors who spoke Greek decades later wrote about them. So I think that's the problem. There's just a gap that like, so to know how we got from that movement of Galilean fishermen um, who, who were Jesus's actual disciples who watched him get crucified to Greek churches that are spread across the Roman Empire um, to eventually becoming the official religion. Those, there, there's a big gulf in between uh, those two streams, I think. There's, there's, a, there's a chasm where we just don't have the information. And the idea is that there was oral tradition preserved in communities as people were going around telling these stories. And I, I think that there's no doubt that there were stories going around about Jesus that made it into Mark's gospel, for example. But where those stories came from and their historical validity is a question that is really difficult to answer with any certainty um, because the stories are just transmitted by people telling stories. So somebody comes to your village and says, I saw Jesus perform this miracle. And, and, the versions that they had of the gospels that we have were different than the ones that we have. Like we can just make that assumption because we know the way that the texts, like we've talked about before, um, have changed over time. And like John said, there were other gospels that were around. I mean, even uh, something like the gospel of Thomas, which um, I think even people that date that don't date it that early still would have it like, closely contemporaneous with the gospel of John, probably within 50 years of the gospel of John. Um, you have the gospel of the Ebionites, which is similar to the gospel of Matthew, um, but doesn't have, I don't think the genealogy or the virgin birth. Um, but those are just the ones we know about. My yeah, point is like, yeah. I mean, there's I a, think... there's a, pl- there's, and, and that like to think that Luke is just referring to the two gospels that we know of, I think is, is, is incorrect. I think that there were more gospels going around. Um, not everything that was there survived. I mean, there was probably um, a signs gospel. There was probably a Q gospel. Yeah. Um, there was probably di- even other birth narratives. Um, you know, we're talking about very early here. But um, and I it's just... also probably just like to a certain extent the luck of what got copied where, by what ended up getting preserved. So I go off and write my fourth draft, put in the wedding, put in the Lazarus, and then I can imagine my agent calling and saying, "Julie, I have bad news and weird news. The bad news is uh, they're not going to make your screenplay into a movie." <laughs> The weird news is they are making a Jesus movie and it's already in production and has a weird origin story of its own. Crazy story. There was a director's retreat in Palm Springs. An unlikely combination of James Cameron and Quentin Tarantino drop acid together, drive out to Joshua Tree Monument, spend a weekend together out there, 
and write their own Jesus screenplay of their own. It's called Revelation. And it is trippy. I mean, their Jesus character, Julia. He's got a white mane of hair, fire coming out of his eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth, for Christ's sake. He enters the scene riding on the back of the four horses of the apocalypse. The moon splits in two, drips blood. Stars fall out of the heavens. And it's testing through the roof. People are going crazy. They think this could be the beginning of a big Jesus franchise. And I would say, but what's the message? What's the message? And my agent would say, I don't know. It's watch out, motherfuckers. Jesus is coming. <clears throat> okay, that... That little bit, I guess, is for the um, skeptic, non-believer Bible scholars out there who are my fans. Very narrow group of people. But actually, I could see believers liking this bit. I mean, the truth is, the message is the most important thing. Love your neighbor. Give to the poor. The end of the world is probably coming soon. I'm on board for all that. And, um... Anyway, happy Easter. <laughs> so I love. I thought it was brilliant how she uh, brings that into Revelation to show like the ultimate, you know, exaggeration and how it evolved. It's really a, a perfect example if, from the comedic perspective that she's going for. I mean, uh, Revelation's obviously not a gospel, and it's a very different type of literature. Um, but I, th- I just thought that was brilliant. And but I think you could even like I was saying, continue it more and talk about other books that were written, you know, after the canonical Gospels um, and how, like, they kept going with it and, and kept exaggerating it even more. I, I love that. I, I was just smiling through the whole thing. And at the end, I was like, oh, she she did that just for us, you guys. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was thinking, like, <laughs> like what a small segment. And like, I was like, it, it's us. I think it's just, like, the I three of us. I think it's just the three of us. <laughs> Yeah, it is nice to be right. It, it is nice to be recognized as a demographic, though. Um, yeah, I I agree. I think that um, it was really it, the whole thing was really good. Um, I like the revelation tie-in as well. Um, it shows just how of a, like crazy of a portrait it is, but it is Jesus in that book too. Um, yeah, like, and there's it doesn't talk about love. It doesn't talk about forgiveness. There's no love or forgiveness. Revelation is pure, unadulterated revenge. Um, yeah, and, and if you look at, like, from, you know, compare the Jesus of Mark to the Jesus of Revelation, and I think that's what she's getting at. Yeah. I mean, you know, from these very simplistic, humble beginnings to, uh, you know, like coming out, coming from the heavens on, uh, you know, in a chariot of fire or whatever and is in Revelation. I got to tell you, I actually didn't realize Jesus was in Revelation. Um, I, I, if you would ask me, is he in that, does he appear in that book? I would probably have, like, I haven't looked at it in a while, obviously, but I would have said no. Yeah, yeah. don't read Revelation 2 um, because you'll lose a lot of respect for Jesus. He's involved in some, I still uh, have stuff. 
this is a whole other episode, <laughs> but I still have like actual trauma from my childhood from that book. Like yeah, I think a the, lot of the, the level are... of of like fear and that was instilled in me because of that. I don't want to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a first of all it's misunderstood in the sense that it's it's apocalyptic literature but people read it like it's written for us today or it's predicting something that's happening in the future which is just foolishness so the fact that they use it to scare kids but it is to, like traumatizing no doubt um i think like so I, I just wanted to touch on one point that john brought up again um about like stretching the timeline further out um because i see a lot of people talk about um, like when it gets to the Gnostic Gospels, for example. And this also ties into something that you said, Liz. You said these are basically like PR. I mean, I think that's really true. Like you have each of these documents create, like try to solve the problems from the pre from their predecessors. But in, in so doing, they create more problems. So, um, you know, you have to tie up Jesus's divinity. So you have Jesus born of a virgin in, in Matthew and Luke, or, you know, born of God and um, God and a female uh, human. Um, and then it's, so now it's clear. Um, but then in, when you get to John, it stretches it back even further to the beginning of time. He's co-equal with God and with God at the beginning of time. Um, in revelation, he's like, uh, it's like, uh, you know, bringing down like final judgment, but like each time you try to address these things, you end up creating other issues that you have to come back and address. Um, and then I think we look at something like the Gnostic gospels, the so-called Gnostic gospels that are, you know, from like the third century, uh, maybe the fourth century, but maybe even, or maybe some earlier, the second century also. Um, and you know, they seem really far away from Christianity, but, you can actually construct like a timeline almost of those same problems just continually being addressed. So, you know, you have already in Mark, Jesus talking to his disciples in secret and telling them like the secret teachings and the, the parables are actually to disguise the te teachings for like the masses. And I'm going to tell you the real teachings in secret. And so eventually that gets developed into Gnosticism where there's secret knowledge that only certain people can get. And there's more complicated gospels that explore that knowledge. Or um, you have Jesus stretched back to being with the father in the beginning in the gospel of John. Well, how does that exactly function if he's with god in the beginning well you have a bunch of different uh, various deities that are spread across a divine council we remember that from the old testament too the hebrew bible there's a divine council so these ideas are all like working to fix problems that get created in the text by developing more texts and so that's how you get this huge diversity in Christianity also. Um, it was like people trying to figure this stuff out on the fly. And um, I think it's really interesting to try to watch the progress happen. And I think that's what I really liked about this video is you could see some of that production happening, that that um, the legend continuing to be developed like uh, in each successive draft. Yeah, I think it's the exact perspective that most people should have when you're reading through the Gospels is to understand, because all she's basically saying is like, 
understand them as progressive works that are changing over time. And like, like Liz said, and it, it's, you know, I could say ditto to that because it was the same thing for me in church. You're never really taught that. You're not taught, well, Mark was the first one written and then Matthew changed it. And, and, and that's like what they tell you, like 101, you know, at like a, a good like seminary um, or a history course on the New Testament. You would learn that right away. But, but most, most kids sitting in church uh, aren't hearing that. And that, and, and so in a weird way, it's like actually pretty good scholarship. I mean, some of the details she gets are a little bit wrong, or maybe I would put them in a different order or whatever. But I still think like the basic endeavor is good. And, and for the purposes of comedy, it's great. Like she she's amazing. Um, and I just want to say one thing off subject a little bit to uh, what Liz was talking about, about like the fear that kids grow up with from not just Revelation, but from other things that are taught to them in church. Revelation is a good example, though, because um, if there's anyone out there that's still dealing with that kind of trauma or um, there's a certain amount of anxiety that um, a lot of people uh, deal with just from sitting in church and and listening to this stuff. Well, when it comes to Revelation, um, it's very clearly talking about ancient Rome, Um, all the analogies, um, like when they're talking about the 666, they're talking about Nero. Um, this was a period of time where the Christians, um, it was, a, it was, they were being uh, persecuted and they were spread around and they looked at Rome as like this great, um, this great evil. And, um, that's the perspective it's written for. It has absolutely nothing to do with us now. And, um, I just think it's important because I know a lot of, uh, Christians and non-Christians, uh, deal with that anxiety that, you know, when you're taught something as a kid and you, and you sit you sit, you know, under preaching that is constantly hammering in that fear into you. That's something that sticks with people for a long time, and it's really hard to get rid of. It's not just in Christianity; it's in other religions and cults and and worldviews where um, where that type of stuff is hammered into the heads of children. And I have a real problem with that. And I want I just want to point out that just using the Bible alone, um, you can point to massive flaws in those type of. Uh, uh, fears that they're trying to instill into people. Yeah, I second that. That was great. Well, guys, what do you think? Do you want to end it there and go into Bible versus Bible? Yeah, let's do it. Sure. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. Welcome to Bible versus Bible, the segment where we take a close look at alleged contradictions in the Bible to try and figure out whether they are just apparent problems, as apologists like to say, or if they are genuine contradictions. What do we have today, Ben? All right, today, in keeping with the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about a contradiction that comes from the Synoptic Gospels. So, um... In Matthew 27, 46, and Mark 15, 34, they record the Jesus crying out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabithalani. Do you know how to say that, John? No. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While Luke, in Luke 24, 23, 46, I'm sorry, records a different saying. He says, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. And then in John 19.30, Jesus' last words are, It is finished. So we have 
three different options for the last words of Jesus. Is it Matthew and Mark? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or John, it is finished. Well, you know what the apologist would say, right, Ben? I'm sure. I have it right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as growing up, I always heard it all mashed together. And, and, you know, they basically say, well, all of them are inerrant, so Jesus said all of them. I have problems with that, obviously. On principle, I have a problem with that. But I think that, especially in this case, that creates problems. I mean, I just think that this is a really clear case where these things lose their meaning if you put them together. This gets into a little bit of um, what Julia Sweeney was talking about, where um, you know each draft um, has a different meaning. So I think um, you know Matthew and Mark really have a very distressed Jesus. Almost, I would almost say you know almost has a dark demeanor here. He feels forsaken. Luke, it seems like, has a problem with that, and 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 Luke in general. Um, has a a more optimistic um, approach. I know in the uh, birth narratives, Luke is a much more joyous uh, presentation, whereas Matthew is a much darker presentation. And I think you see the same thing here. I don't think um, I don't think Luke was comfortable portraying uh, Jesus as you know distraught and and forsaken and suffering. Um, so he changed it. So I think. To your point, Ben, you're doing a big disservice to the authors when you make them all say the same thing, because they're clearly not trying to say the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the things that makes Mark's Mark's gospel powerful is the down notes. It's like, wow, we watch this trial. This trial happens at night outside the norms. Um, It's like a sham of justice. Jesus goes to the cross. He's like, he doesn't speak during his trial. Well, first he prays all night at Gethsemane. Um, at pre- please take this cup from me. He's arrested. He goes through the sham of the trial. He's um, taken out to the cross. Uh, he doesn't even defend himself in, during the trial. He goes out to the cross. He hangs. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then dies. Like, that's powerful. Like, um, and I think that that's like, but it's an uncomfortable type of powerful because you have this person who's perceived as, in Mark's gospel, he's the secret Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, he is the Messiah, um, giving up his life and being crucified like a criminal and also feeling abandoned by God on the cross. And I think Luke took that and said, my Jesus is not going to be going out like that. My Jesus is basically going to um, go out, like, giving himself up. He's going to lay down his life. Um, And it's like Luke's whole motif is like uh, the kingdom of God. Jesus is enacting the kingdom of God on earth. Even like when uh, Jesus is marching to his death with the cross, the women are weeping. And he says, don't weep for me, women of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves. Like, he's like, don't worry. I, I have this all under control. That's not what Mark's Jesus was like. And um, so it's a totally different mood 
Luke is like, Jesus already has all this planned out on his own. Like he knows the deal. Is it Luke where he tells the person you'll see me? Yeah. Truly today. Uh, you will see with you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, I mean, he's he's telling the thief next to him, "Don't even worry about it. We're we're going to paradise." Like it's not the angsty Jesus we see from Mark. So just putting those two together, you lose both of what those authors are trying to do. Yeah, this is sort of the perfect Bible versus Bible for this episode, because I mean that's this is like if you're creating this story your version of the story you've got to get that that last line perfect <laughs> and so of course they're not going to be the same nobody knows if jesus christ said anything on the cross and if he did what he said so this is this is screenwriting right here this is like this is the dark night of the soul this is the hero's journey and so depending on what, yeah, like Ben's saying, what your kind of themes are in your specific story, you got to make that line work for whatever it is you're doing. And yeah, Luke has a hero, Jesus. And uh, there's, and then the other ones are sort of the, the suffering, the tragic, the tragic Jesus. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think that's the motif that Luke wants you to take. It's not, it's Jesus is, Jesus is not being crucified. Jesus is laying down his life. And and then I think John takes that even to another level where Jesus is like, even just like, okay, it's my time to go. I'm, it's finished. I'm done. Like he's uh, even more um, in control than John. Um but I think John is just a different of a different sort always, so it's tough. But it's it is it is a great example because it does show you how each of these authors were trying to get their point across in a specific way in this one particular moment. And I mean, the narratives themselves tell you that there's no one there. I mean, except for John's in John's uh, narrative, the beloved disciples there, who's supposed to be the author of the book. Um, but all the other disciples have fled um and and in all the other narratives all the disciples have fled too so it even like to you know even if you're imagining internal to the narrative there's not someone there to hear these words so it is important it is what the author is trying to tell you when you when he's reconstructing this and so uh mark has jesus quoting psalms um and feeling forsaken and and, you know, that sounds like an early trauma of a movement that's still trying to, like, wrestle with, like, what this crucifixion, like, a shamefulness around the crucifixion. And that's what we know about Mark. It's relatively early. Like, they're still wrestling with some of the issues. They still don't have a timeline for when Jesus became God um, and how exactly that functioned. Um, they don't, they haven't, like, you know, like, we don't have appearances in Mark. Um, so... Yeah, I think this is uh, an interesting Bible versus Bible, especially with uh, in line of the uh, video that we uh, listened to earlier. This kind of opens up a whole other... I, I, I sort of wish I had infinite time to closely read all of these books because it would be so interesting to have a conversation about Jesus the character. You know, it's like, oh my God, you know, I you can't cast these four books the same way. <laughs> like 
it would be so interesting to see how the, this all lines up with the rest of, like, how he is presented as the protagonist, depending on what book you're looking at. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I mean, people that try to harmonize the Gospels, uh, and they try to get rid of these contradictions by basically trying to make them all true, You, what you would end up is with, with is a very ridiculous story. And I think that's kind of your point is like, if you really did, you would have you would have a Jesus that's completely changing, instantly changing moods on a dime, um, like literally teleporting to different places because like the timelines are completely different. Um, and it, it is an interesting thought experiment to try to harmonize them for that reason. But it's also kind of hilarious. And the, the fact that that's what these people want us all to believe Um you know, and and I guess they're just hoping that we don't like read it and line them up next to each other and look at it, um, because like it's hugely problematic. The idea that they would say, "Oh, well, there probably was someone there." Like the women were probably close enough to the crucifixion where they could have heard the words of Jesus. You have to keep in mind, like the Gospels are written from an omniscient narrator standpoint. We know in the Gospels uh, what everybody is thinking. We know what you know. Pilate's wife's dream was about. We know what Jesus' prayer was about when it specifically says no one was around. Um, so we have, you know, it's they are the creative works of an author. And that doesn't mean that there's not historical tidbits in there. I'm not saying that they're, you know, I'm not a mythicist. I'm not saying that this is completely invented. Um, there was a historical Jesus, and there is probably things we can, historical information we can glean about him. But, um, the idea that what we're reading in the Gospels can be taken word for word as um, historical accounts, I think is just pretty obviously not the case just by doing like a little bit of a, um, of a close look at them. But the ultimate question here for Bible versus Bible is, so what do you think? Is this a genuine contradiction? Um, if I had to weigh in, I would say, uh, like I've said on a few of the other ones, technically it's not a contradiction because it is possible that Jesus could have uttered all of those words. Um, but I think you really have to stretch um, to believe that. And I think that um, it's much more reasonable to say it is a contradiction because these are um, obviously like literary inventions. I would say it's a, you, like, like you say, John, it's not, a, it's not technically a contradiction because these are just, they're, it's dialogue, you know, it's not some sort of fact written out, but it is, in my view, contradictory. One of Some of the lines sound like Jesus doesn't know why he's there, if that makes sense, which completely changes the narrative for me. Yeah, I think, cha- I think completely changing the mind, the, the state of mind of Jesus is the reason that I see it as contradictory because it's not just him saying different words. It's, it's having his state of mind like comfortable or distraught. And it's interesting that Luke like doesn't have any of the language of being distraught. And, um, so for so for that reason, I, I would say it is contradictory. Yeah. I think it's like, um, it may not be a contradiction. But I think it's almost a bigger problem than a contradiction if you put them all together. Because 
you lose everything. You literally lose everything. Like you don't have you don't have Jesus in like Jesus in Matthew and Mark is abandoned on the cross. And if you make him say immediately thereafter, Father, into your hands I deliver my spirit, or he's lecturing the thief next to him that we're gonna be together in paradise, he's not abandoned on the cross anymore. And so you don't have what Mark and Matthew are trying to tell you. You've completely changed it. And if then he says, I am finished, or it is finished, you just lose everything. Like if you if you try to mash it together, and so that's why I think it's like, um, for me, maybe it's not a contradiction, but it's whatever's worse than a contradiction is what happens if you just smash this together. Because I think it's like, I, I think what Liz said before is is another like super helpful way to think about it. Read each gospel with a different person cast as Jesus, because like really these are these authors are telling you about a character, but they're crafting the character how they want to craft the character, and so it's not gonna be the same Jesus. It's not just four people that were watching these events, and so to imagine that they're talking, they're not all examining the same historical sources and trying to draw like a similar picture. Like what they are trying to do is draw different pictures. And so it's, it's good. And I think like actually like helpful to think of them as very separate. Um, so yeah, it, it may not be an exact contradiction. You could make Jesus say all these words, I guess, but then the words almost have no meaning anymore. Right. Yeah, I still, I think what I was, I was like, again, thinking and talking at the same time, but I, I do think they may not be a contradiction, but they are contradictory. Yeah. Right. Because if you say that the fact that it's the, the, the Matthew and Mark one with him asking a question, that's what throws me because it, it, it makes it seem like he doesn't, like he's not in on it. Like he doesn't actually know. And if you're if you're gonna tell me that there's a Trinity and Jesus is God and he always was and always will be, he would be in on the plan, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Like what why would it's the fact that it's framed as a question and a desperate question in that is also it's just a little bit uh, I'm surprised that more people aren't um, it, it, more literalists, at least, aren't more concerned about that. Yeah, and I think the um, you mentioned the Trinity, and um, you know the Trinity is a concept that um, is not in the Bible. It's it's derived um, from the Bible, but it's never explicitly taught. Wait, and, what? Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, I missed that's that whole... episode. I guess. Yeah, I Are mean, you serious. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, the Trinity is um, not something that um, Christians even explicitly believe for, I don't know, how long, Ben? Well, it's Athanasius, I think. Sometime in like the second century, I think, is when they started fighting over... I don't think they had it settled, though, even till later than that. It may not have been till like even like the third century that they settled it for certain. I mean, it was a development of that theology. Because, right. And I think sort of like we talked about before, like where, well, 
Jesus is at the right hand of God or he's coexistent with God from the beginning. Like, how does this sort out and, and a development? Oh, well, he is also part of God and he gave us his spirit. So anyway, it, it's a, probably a whole yeah, um, episode I was gonna we could say, do on that. Um, yeah, I was going to say we, we probably shouldn't go down too much of a rabbit hole other than to say, no, the Trinity is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And... Um, where it's derived from, it's by taking various verses and kind of mashing them together. But I think it's important to point out that there's actually points where the Trinity is kind of like impossible, you know, in the Bible, because you have Jesus saying the Father is greater than I, which um, goes against the teaching that you have, you know, three equal um, parts of the Godhead. And um, and there's other verses, so we can get into that at another time. But um, yeah, long story short, uh, the Trinity is not is definitely not explicitly taught anywhere in the Bible. They would apologists would argue that it it is in there, and um, that's like part of a much longer discussion. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. Liz, it's been awesome having you here with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah, Liz, hope, you were a really great addition. We loved having you. Hope I to hope, uh, have you on again soon. Yeah, yes, let's please. definitely. <laughs> Let's do it some more. Absolutely. Well, I guess that wraps it up for today, guys. So until next time, this is the Skeptics Bible Project saying goodbye. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.